Hello and welcome to Arid Podcast. Arid is a raw, unscripted podcast offering conversations between an artist and a philosopher. In this podcast, you can expect us to uproot, unpick and redefine contemporary modes of thinking within the South African context. In each episode, we will do so by making eclectic use of various cultural text and theoretical disciplines. I'm Nicolene Berger. And I'm Jana Vosloer. And this is Eret. Today we have a very informal conversation, it's even more raw than our usual conversations and Jana and I actually thought to talk about this or air our ideas around this topic before but now we think that it is very very prevalent and very important to talk about it. So we've decided today to speak about allyship and um, with what is going on in the world right now it's very important that we air our ideas and really think about what does the word ally mean and Jana is actually busy with her masters and her thesis is around this topic so we are going to really dig into this conversation today but it is in the sense that it's raw because it's very current in the world and there's a lot of feelings connected to this topic right now. It's also very raw for us to speak about it. It's a very vulnerable conversation to have. So we hope that you will be patient with us and we hope that you will engage with us further around this topic as it is not a topic that should just be discussed when it is important in the world or something big has happened, but it is a continuous topic that we need to discuss. So as long as there is inequality and experiences of inequality and discrimination discussions around allyship is important so Jana maybe we can dig in so we haven't really spoken about your thesis in a while so for me it's also going to be a refreshing conversation to also get where you are at now in your writing process as you've been busy with this for two years now um, I want to just ask you why you chose allyship as a topic. Did you decide to do it because you felt like there wasn't a constructive guide out there in the world for people that think of themselves as allies or want to be allied? Did you want to write a kind of guide? Uh, were you interested in the embodied nature of allyship? So what is it exactly um, and how did you approach this topic? Okay, so you know, there's, there's so much to be said and, and there's a lot of big questions that you ask now but maybe I want to start by just saying um it's difficult to separate in in a discussion like this the very um the focus of an academic inquiry versus a topic that is I I think of allyship as a buzzword let me start with that so I in my investigation I see it as even because in 2015 or even prior with, with Black, hashtag Black Lives Matter, it started surfacing the concept allyship on social media and in, in Fees Must Fall. And we spoke about this in our first episode. It was also something that, you know, it's, it's a word that, that gained new meaning. Mm. And for me, I think the reason why I approached it as a topic was um, because I saw a lot of or oh, I noticed a lot of ambiguities in terms of how people speak about allyship. Yes. And now specifically within the academic discourse, because there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of emerging literature yeah. on allyship. 
And for me, there was a disconnect between, between the type of literature um, and also because I do my master's in philosophy and I didn't see anything in the field of philosophy on allyship yet. It was more within like student affairs type of literature, which is like in the university discourse where they talk about how. So a lot of it was like how students can become allies. And a lot of it was even from in the 90s and the 2000s where allyship was mainly focused on like either race or either on queer support or things like that. So I felt like there was a, a change in the discourse surrounding allyship mm. from when it was first initiated as an academic concept mm. to when uh, it's something that you see or that people talk about in the very like lived experiences in like protest spaces or now where yeah, there's a, there's a need of support. So to answer your question of like why I chose this topic, I think it's it's because I was interested in this disconnect, but then I have to add to that. It's also, I mean, it's so complicated and it speaks to, a, I guess, a certain mode of privilege to be able to just think about allyship from such a almost removed position. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ambiguities and... Um, even as I complete my thesis, I'm still feeling very ambivalent towards the concept. So it's not something that I almost want to say, like, I'm actually quite critical of the idea of like a guide to allyship yes. or these, okay. these concrete, concrete steps of like yeah. 10 ways that you can yes. be an ally today. And it's something that it's, it's so interesting now. And it's not, it's interesting academically and it's, it's important to think about it at the moment is how this discourse of allyship is almost taking a second shift if you mm. look about it at it now just intuitively versus five years ago i'm i'm noticing even on social media quite a shift so i think yeah. it's it's important and it it's an affirmation that this is a topic that needs further clarification so mm. with something like a buzzword and if you think about it in a in the academic sphere or wherever it's it's important to deal with these words with these topics that we find in our society and to and that's where philosophy comes in is to think what are we saying when we are talking about allyship when we define it in this way what are we meaning and what are the like implicit assumptions that that are being made when mm. we talk about allyship? i think that's so, something i want to jump off now is to ask you about the implicit assumptions you noticed um because like you say social media is a very strange space it's a space that is um kind of looked over by systems that are non-human so algorithms suggest certain things for us and it is a space where if you like certain things you get that in your feed so you can very easily kind of fall into this echo chamber of content but then there's also this this opening of our society through social media where we're all connected um, and a, a podcast that I love listening to is called your undivided attention which basically speaks about our relationship with social media and how it is not such a neutral platform as we think it is as we enter it so we think we enter the platform we share our things we look at things we're interested in we leave it and there's obviously a lot of influence actually in our lives our attention span the way that we think about things the think that the things that we think are going on in the world and that's important and how they surface in our social media and it was interesting in this time for me to notice that there is actually a lot of suggestions coming up in my feed around being an ally. So that, like you say, there is some assumptions, there is some kind of structural outline. So I'm interested in those kind of implicit um, 
your assumptions that you mentioned now, what are the things that you noticed in your research kind of is associated with being an ally? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And I think, so what we would call in philosophy as something that's called like a normative statement. Mm. So it's, it's, it's maybe a part of ethics, but it talks a little bit about that whole thing of is versus ought. So um, an assumption that say, this is how you should be, then it's a normative statement because it's assume, it assumes there's like a way of being mm-hmm. um, that is almost better or preferred or um, you, you challenge people to be in that way. So there's a For the philosophy question. 101 today. <laughs> it's difficult to explain without it. But so what I noticed in, in the allyship talk is there's a lot of ought normative statements. So you will find like a very much, there's a such oversaturated uh, amount of websites, resources, Instagram posts now again on like how to be an, uh, how to be an ally or 10 ways to be a better ally or what white allies need to learn or, um, and I'm not distant. I'm not trying myself now to make a normative statement on the place of those posts. I'm not mm-hmm. saying like um, they shouldn't be there or they are not helpful because I mean, there's a lot to be said for social justice education and on social media and how that serves as a platform for a lot of people to start questioning behaviors. Mm. But then it's also it's also important for me to critically think about what it means when we have these very intense normative statements mm. surrounding allyship. And then another big thing about allyship that I'm noticing now is that people people talk about performative allyship versus allyship so uh, another normative dimension is almost the discourse surrounding fake allies and real allies Mm. so what does it mean to be um, and there's a lot of there's there's really like a lot of buzzwords that people use the whole lexicon actually that emerge that is emerging on ways of being like false or fake or um self-proclaimed allies versus Mm true or real or good allies so there's almost this binary mm. that i know between ways of being an ally and these guides are then to shift you from the one to the other mm. so when i spoke about the trend of like performative allies so it, it implies that you are merely maybe posting on social media to show that you are in support or because it's trendy mm. or because you don't want your customers maybe to distance themselves from you as a company. And um, it almost becomes like a PR stunt. Mm. So uh, to protect your image, you are pre- proclaiming um, a mode of allyship. Mm. And, then, and then that's called performative allyship. And I just want to say something that was interesting for me to notice in myself, because I think while we're having this conversation, I continue thinking that in order not to make ought statements about what needs to be true universally, I try to feel what I feel about these things, so how they apply to me. And something that I noticed in in just the post of the Black Block, for example, was every time when we, I went on social media, also because of the research that I've done on social media and how it influences the way that we act and the way that we perform, I could feel that the blocks became this performativity kind of allyship because there's this pressure of social media where you get on it and now you scroll in your feed and there's just all of these blocks. And, and I kept thinking, 
don't tell me that there's no one here that's just posting the block out of pressure, you know? And, and then yeah. there's also a lot of questions around that. Like, how does that really inform um, the, uh, supporting the movements? Yeah, and it, so a lot of allyship is exactly about, firstly, the problems with um, the problems. And now I'm just, I'm just now making observations about what I'm seeing. I'm not really making any of my own claims at the moment. Mm -hmm. But this idea of, so perform, performing allyship, where, like you say, it's, it's, it's almost criticized when you call yourself an ally. So if I go and say now, uh, you know, I identify as an ally, I mean, a lot of people find a lot of trouble with that because it's problematic to claim almost an identity marker mm -hmm. um, from this position. So just maybe something that I should have said in the beginning already is let's define allyship real quick. Because yeah, I think <laughs> that's, that's maybe a, like that's that's number one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit late now, but... Um, but we were just airing our thoughts. Assuming that, that people even know what allyship is. So <laughs> maybe we should just pause quickly and define allyship. So allyship is defined in the academic literature as people from a position of privilege mm. who um, actively support those within a marginalized position. Mm. And then, so firstly, uh, if you have to go conceptually clarify that definition, you have to ask, what does it mean to be in a position of privilege? What does it mean to be in a marginalized position? What does it mean to support or what yeah. and what actions are included as forms of support? So mm -hmm. is support merely social media support? Is it physically putting your body on a line in a protest? And even when you do it there, what does it mean if you are just self-proclaiming it? Or is it, does it mean... Is it continuous support? You? Was there a call? Is it a once-off support? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of unanswered squid. Like the definition is very broad yeah. <laughs> and it makes a lot of assumptions about how we see identity. Mm -hmm. So like one problem that I have is it, it to just by, by definition, by relying on privileged or marginalized identity, you are assuming a very fixed position of like who are allies. Mm -hmm. Allies, it's not necessarily very intersectional. So mm -hmm. is ally, it's, it would be problematic to only equate allyship to white Mm -hmm. or to equate those of need in need of allyship as only oppressed people because that's not how identity works mm -hmm. so there's a lot of emphasis on almost like a single um, mode of identity assuming that we are only in that we are so fixed in our identities that we are like either an ally or in need of allyship maybe and that's that's so there's all and these kind and, of and what you're saying is there's a little bit more of a, of a give and take there's a little bit more of a scale because our identities shift and how that shift that shift might be because i'm also a woman so there's other conversations around allyship that comes in with with masculinity and femininity and male and female and then there's also that comes in with sexuality and and those kind of discourses so whenever there's a kind of power um, structure, a hierarchy, there is a conversation to be had about allyship and those kind of power structures and dynamics always shift um, within ourselves, within our societies and therefore our identities as allies, if we, in, in quotes, call ourselves an ally, um, they're also going to shift with these and um, therefore I understand now what you mean, it's difficult to set up a guide for that kind of shifting identity, shifting terms. Yeah, so I think, um, and just what I want to say, just as a, 
like obviously now with um, hashtag Black Lives Matter movement, the context is in such a way that mm. the allies are identified as mostly white people. Mm. So obviously allyship is very context dependent. And when we are speaking about it now, it's, it's very different to when we are speaking about it um, in maybe the context of hashtag me too. And mm. it's not, um, while I think there's a danger of separating these movements and separating everything because it is so much more intersectional, mm. um, there is also something to be said for part of being an ally is understanding the context in which I was just what about to say, yeah. It's, it's almost like there's the sensitivity of gauging that what is expected of me as an ally at this stage now might change. Like you said, noticing just how the Black Lives Matter movement and the kind of context and, and content that is put out around the movement right now is different from when it started a few years ago and also during Fees Must Fall in 2015. So it's also the sensitivity of being aware of what is going on in the space and what is required in the space right now. What kind of, like you said, the support what, that is also a term that, that has a very broad meaning. So what does the support mean in this time right now? Yeah, exactly. And a, lo a lot of, so in, in my thesis, I, I try to take these words like action, support, privilege, which is like marker of identity. And then I try to unpack those terms and see how a certain theorist can help me with it. So I won't go into the theoretical parts of it, but um, specifically with support, it once again, it comes down to, and same with identity. So the question I have is like, why, why is it, why are we so, we kind of crave or need or are dependent on a very concrete answer to these questions? Like, who is an ally? When are you an ally? How do you be an ally? It's almost like, and and I, I take issue with the trend at the moment of trying to fix these complex phenomena in six easy steps. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. why is there such a craving? And it, it comes down to this essentialist mode of identity as well. Mm. Why are we still in need of um, fixing our markers in, in identity in society? And obviously that's a question that I'm not it's a very big answer. question because that I mean that relates to so many ways that we think about I mean we discussed last time as well how uh, even the nuances during like in our education system is ignored so there's so many nuances and also we spoke about the nuances um when we spoke about penisiopus in terms of trauma and vulnerability so we are very complex systems and beings in this space but it's like our society create we've created this categorized system where things need to slot perfectly into boxes and because of those boxes and the fact that the things we want to slot in don't really fit in the boxes perfectly we're creating a lot of difficulty for ourselves because we're ignoring like you say the intersectionality and the complexity of the issues at hand yeah and so maybe even like it, it might be, it might sound like a bit of a stretch, but what I would argue is that almost this mode of um, categorizing and wanting a very stable fixed marker, like you say, like that box, that's a very masculine colonial way of thinking that we are still, that we are still, um, that is so ingrained. And yeah, so a more feminist approach would be to 
to try and think so the, the type of theory that I use is relational relationality to, to try and think more fluidly and relationally and that doesn't mean that you neglect to acknowledge power imbalances and systemic ways of being and work within the the categorizations that are already in place like I don't want to sound like it's going into this like la di da I am you you and me blah 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 it's just a way of trying to also be critical about this to fix and to stabilize these these discourses almost yeah. in this positivist scientific way when it's actually a complex social issue and and i think also the simplified system of creating a, a guide that has six steps for allyship is also a way for white people to ignore the complexities around their own guilt and their own shame you know it's like oh okay wonderful i can tick these six steps and now i'm an ally now i don't have to worry about the complexity of my being and my skin and my privilege so mm. that for me is also where my red lights go on and like oh this is way too simple simplified then for the complexity of how like you say we engage relationally with each other and how my skin and my privilege says something for me on my behalf even before i speak or do something which can be ignored by a simplified um, um guide but i wanted to ask you um if you want to elaborate on what i just said lovely but if you can also go into a little bit about that relationality theory i said i know that you don't want to go too deep into the academic side of it but just to unpack a little bit the concept of relationality and how that like you said relates to a kind of feminist thinking So um, I think, so, okay, relationality, as I, I use the philosopher Judith Butler and her specific version of relationality, which is actually a non-specific version because that is what <laughs> relationality is, but yeah. like um, she, she uses relationality on, on a level that is what I argue, uh, I, I'll, and I'm going to break it down, but ontological so that means in our very way of existing and being like the very nature of reality so a basic example of that is we are ontologically dependent to the extent that even when you give birth or everyone like the way that you come into this world you're it's always through what she would argue like a mode of dependency mm -hmm. so you are dependent on someone to feed you on uh, it's something that you cannot be you no one is born like self-sufficient mm. and um, we neglect to realize that as we start becoming more independent that all our, our modes of being is in a very strict sense related or premised on a relationship with other people yeah. and it's the same with ethics so yeah. if you ask the, qu the question of ethics like it's not what is moral what is good it is to whom am I good? To whom it's it's because of a relation to someone that you are even prompted to think about ethics. And um, also your your existence and your mode of being, like being good is justified by someone receiving it as good. So what is coming up for me now in this idea of relationality and how we link to other people is the fact that your pain is only acknowledged if someone listens and acknowledges your pain and within this movement right now there's this very big conversation around the acknowledging of trauma and and pain and how 
a lot of these movements and a lot of these protests are essentially started by the fact that so many people feel like they are not received in that experience of trauma and pain they're not being listened to so that's also an interesting thing of like almost like how within this relationality certain aspects of ourselves and our being is justified through that relational um setup yeah and at the same time uh, the relationality is also very political um to the extent that there's power imbalances that linger in this in this relational way of being of who is considered to be a, a, a subject or person worthy of, of um, not worthy of that sound, that, that's not the right way to say it, but it's more like there's an unequal distribution of the way we are considered relational subjects, if that yes. makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. Um, it, it, that, that precarity conversation kind yeah. of comes so in that's here now. Like Butler as well. But then relationality is also broader and um, can go, if you go into more like almost an ecological theory as well, it's not just relationality to one, one another, but also relationality on broader networks of support. So how we, and that's, we spoke about that when we spoke about like statues and protests and spaces and how our physical surroundings are, we are also in relation to that. Yes. So a lot of people use relationality as a concept to further like um, animal rights or ecological thinking um, regarding our relationship to nature as well, or the yeah. environment, our environments around us basically. So yeah. even if we think about allyship and we think about that, that concept of support again, yeah. it's relational to the extent like how people sometimes say, um, you just need water, protesters, protesters need water and food and allyship can be about providing that so making sure the supporting networks in terms on a very basic level is also met so yeah so relationality i don't know if i unpacked it enough but it's it's this constant reminder that when we think about things we need to think about it in in the complex relations that exist and where the complexity then goes in like not what is what is ourselves as separate entities but what happens in between us yeah uh, is part of that relationality and it can sound very abstract but they are also very like concrete examples that can help us understand relational thinking when a group of people is saying that we are experiencing pain, we are experiencing trauma, and we call for justice and for an answer, that needs to be held in the space before you can now start telling you. For example, the contrast, but, or not the contrast, but this tension between the hashtags, Black Lives Matter and the hashtags, All Lives Matter, and how people have started like drawing the comparison of if, if it was a child that was murdered, and it wasn't a discussion around race necessarily, but a discussion about child murder. Are you now just going to make a, a hashtag that says, if someone says hashtag child lives, child's lives matter, you're going to say hashtag all lives matter. Something, or oh, this is where allyship also comes in, is people always or often draw the analogy between like who's, who's at the table. So if you think about like a dinner party or whatever, and um, to say that for a long time, some people was, 
at the head of the table and and mm. i mean you, you find this in in households still like people like how white men literally want to sit at the head of the table yeah um, but but more like as a metaphor now how um what it means to have a seat at the table but not head the table and for that conversation to take place and it's the same with with putting black lives matter at the head of the table giving giving the discussion but still it doesn't mean moving away from the space or distancing yourself from the space there is also a way to be in the space so that other people can hold the space for mm. for a change can 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 be the host of yes. that space yes. and um the the yeah so i think a lot of people say with allyship it's it's having a seat at the table without being tempted to control that that table and like you say as well um you find that especially with people's response to anger and emotions mm -hmm. and and an incapacity to realize that power dynamics and all these things are very ingrained in those emotional mm. experiences as well and yeah, one thing that i must say about social media and the, and the new like i said the new lexicon that's emerging like these concepts these buzzwords and um they are helpful and something like tone policing as an example of like how you are constantly trying to um tell someone how you want them to feel mm. and like all those microaggressions managing someone's emotions yeah and, and then sorry yeah no, go for no I, I just wanted to say that that um that can also be an interesting point of reflection. Like if you have an awareness around what is going on inside you in terms of trying to manage the space and trying to manage other people's emotions, it's also an indicator of where your privilege is. So if you are used to being in charge of spaces, being able to control spaces, being able to delegate and dictate who gets to speak and what, or even if you just have an inclination to raise your hand or stand up and say, um, excuse me, can we just that needs to be a mirror that needs to be a reflection of your privilege to yourself that's a point of reflection so if we become more in tune with what is going on inside ourselves instead of just jumping on every emotion and reacting and posting and kind of screaming our own experience to other people we can start to become aware of the privilege that we have to to do certain things in certain spaces very much what i um notice and what i think links to what you're saying now is um that tactfulness of in that moment being able to discern um what is what is the what the space demands and that's when when i spoke in the first episode of like how how those acts are embodied there's it might seem like there's ambiguous mes messaging but that's so the silence one is a good example for me it's like know when to stay silent and then at the other hand silence is violence so when your silence is actually a problem when when it's needed of you to speak up so mm. um that's a wonderful example of how you cannot capture it in six easy steps because if it was just to be step three be silent and step four don't be silent yes. that wouldn't be the same. so so that's indicative of the fact that we have to be tactful and we have to discern when is your silence violent and when is it needed that you stay silent yeah and that is almost like an entunement of firstly understanding power relations and obviously reading up and educating yourself and all of those things mm. but also understanding 
the embodied significance of acts that transcend just verbal expressions mm. and how we need to school ourselves in that a little bit more as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that's Definitely. just why the ambiguities is not a problem in the it's it's actually a lack of delving deeper into those ambiguities mm. that I find problematic about the allyship discourse. And something else is that, so I see a lot of people, you see a lot of messages and once again, the context is everything of like blocking or removing or unfollowing people who are making maybe problematic claims. And obviously it's completely different for marginalized voices to do it from a place of like not re-traumatizing themselves. So like physically it's too much to see how prevalent these, these um, claims still are and to, and to them to protect yourself, like from that space, it's something completely different to from a space of allyship or privilege or whatever to go and just say, if you don't believe this, like go and follow a block that like blocking culture or yeah. cancel culture. And, um, and I saw, yeah, I just saw a post about this as well about how do we then also once again try and remove these ambiguities <laughs> uh, when we think that it's possible to simply just block out uh, the racism and the, the systemic things that exist and I've tried myself to purposefully keep my Facebook, keep some of those people on my Facebook and and remind myself that this isn't just a bubble of and like I cannot only become comfortable with my bubble Echo of like chamber. Yeah. Echo chamber of white work people where we are also only maybe um prioritizing white voices and yeah so it's just um it's it's an interesting temptation uh in terms of how like i don't think allyship is about blocking out or um yeah it's just this idea of like where does the engagement then lie and and mm. where what is where is there a sense of responsibility to yeah. engage? And obviously, you cannot fight every single battle, and that's yeah. not what is expected. But it is interesting to the way we try to control and frame our environment. Mm. Um, so, as, as an artist, I can reflect on this. It's a very sensitive example for me, but it's one that I think is very important in this time to maybe just mention that. Um, I'm constantly putting out calls when I create work to say that people can give me feedback and tell me what they think and please engage with what I say. And then that space needs to be a space on social media where I am able to take the kind of feedback and criticism. And I recently had um, a, a white woman reach out to me and say that she thinks that I should be careful around certain content or projects that I've been putting out. And she just wants to reflect to me that this is how she's reading my work as an outsider and um and that she is aware that she doesn't know all of my research that went into it but she's just curious to know kind of what is going on behind it and and how have i thought about it and that kind of engagement i appreciated so much because it wasn't a cancel it wasn't a, sh a shaming um from a point of allyship. I mean, obviously, if a person of color engaged with me, it would have been a completely different conversation, but we were able to converse about this 
topic and about this work and it was um like you say it was a space where we could invite the ambiguity into the conversation and acknowledge that this is a very important concern like i appreciate even though that it is work that is very close to my heart i appreciate that she reached out to me and said you know this i think why people need to be very conscious of what they put out on social media at the moment and i just want to highlight that now um and with regards to your content and and i was like well shop yes i agree with you why people need to be really careful about what they put out and i can assure you that i did consider what i'm putting out but i am appreciative of this mirror that you're giving me and this engagement and this option to reflect on on what i've put out and created so yeah i, I just wanted to say that there is the sense of engagement that can come with social media between allies where we are not because i mean that idea of just screaming at someone that you are not agreeing with is also not necessarily going to help us get to a point where we can be more inclusive exactly thank you for sharing that reflection and it the point that i also got from that is that constant process of critically evaluating and re-evaluating oh, within um, ourselves yourself and your position and um i'm also like i mean it's it's important to be honest about temptations that we might feel that to say uh, maybe like even for me like what does it mean now if i'm just doing my masters on allyship that doesn't that doesn't mean i'm an ally like that's not and it's it's funny that you know it's it's just the way that we try to position ourselves and um how you can maybe easily fall in the trap of thinking you are exempt of something and i think it's because we need to as privileged people constantly 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 be aware of our own um what's blind the word? spots blind spots yeah our uh, our own preconceived ideas our own biases that's the word that i was looking for that that we in the society that requires us to constantly categorize and fit things into boxes we are constantly in our mind kind of shuffling and recreating the i am that i am an artist i am a woman i am a white person i am you know and then i am an ally and it can become so easily just a quick category that i can put in my mind is like wow boom there it is you know and it it is something we do in ourselves to kind of simplify our identity in order for us to engage with the world because things are so complex but it is something that as an artist and a philosopher and with this with this erit podcast we are trying to get people into the mode of not doing that of rather leaving the eye a little bit more fluid in order for you to spot your blind spots and in order for you to be aware of of where you have a problematic idea that is so deeply embedded embedded that you don't even know that it's there and then if someone puts up that mirror to you you're not completely shattered and starting to scream your pain at them but rather have the the capacity to then take that note and reflect on that note and internalize that note and understand what that then means for the i exactly and and also to understand that it it is not just an i and that's yeah. where reality comes back into it is that to also reduce the temp- temptation of constantly living in the i when yeah. we are so clearly living in a we yes. like it is yes and and so clearly living in a we where we are not even sure who is included in the we yeah um, yeah and um and it i wanted to say one more thing about that whole idea of about performative allyship and it's funny for me it's like a little bit of a <laughs> a, a 
um, toevallig, it's like coincidentally, it's like a funny a play on words for me because Judith Butler theorizes on the, the concept of performativity, which has a very, a, a bit of a different meaning that one, that when people say allies, allyship is performative, but so they mean like you are just trying to show something that's not really true. But what performativity also means, or what Judith Butler might say is like, we are all constantly performative. Yeah. Uh, gender is performative. Like performativity is about these like acts of rep rep repetition that bring something into being. Mm -hmm. So by constantly um, saying certain things or doing certain things, you are making those things happen. And we are constantly in this process of what you would call like doing and undoing it. And that's how discourses start. So it's funny to me also to say, don't be, don't have performative allyship when all ways of being is, um, if you follow Judith Butler, obviously that's a whole different debate, but um, is performative in some way. So it's not a question of being performative or not performative, but once again, coming down to discerning the, the performativity that you already have and to try and tap into ways in which you can subvert. So that just means a way of doing it a little bit differently to change the power imbalances. Mm. Um, so maybe we, start, we should start embracing the fact that allyship is performative. Um, and, and even if it's whether it's this, the black block or, or whatever, um, or if it's you calling out someone in your family, or if it's this type of conversation that you are having between people of privilege and challenging each other, like um, it's about reflecting on the, the, the power that, that our performative actions have. Um, I think it's also about opening your scope. So Jana and I are now limited within this time. Like we said in the beginning, we have, a, it's a very improvised conversation we're having today and we've spoken long and we haven't even gotten to the cultural text that we maybe want to unpack, but maybe we'll do that in a different way. But the, the, the fact is that you need to open your scope. So you need to also invite other voices. We keep speaking about the, the echo chamber and um, we forget that, like Jana said, that we concept that we're living with is also our community and our way that we see the world, which is a frame. It's been set up um, by the way we were raised, by our privilege frame, by the people that we engage with from a very young age, our neighborhoods, all of that. So to understand that in order to be an ally, um, you need to also invite other voices into the conversation so that you can get a different perspective on these biases and on these blind spots that you have. Um, so not to just continue to have a conversation with those that you feel comfortable with, but to go into the spaces that make you feel uncomfortable because reserving uh, the conversation, and again, I'm speaking now because the two of us are speaking as individuals yeah. and as friends, res reserving the conversation for a space where you feel comfortable is a privilege. So you have to also challenge yourself to go into spaces that make you feel uncomfortable and you have to open the space up for other voices to challenge you. I don't know if you want to go into the cultural text, just maybe briefly mention the human shield example as a, an example of performative allyship, because I think it's, a, it's, a, it's quite an interesting example of how that kind of performativity in the action comes through 
um, in, in, in that example. Yeah, so like one example that I used as a case study um, in my thesis, kind of in the beginning to make the point of how allyship is more amb ambiguous than what it is uh, made out to be maybe, um, was the example of a, the human shield that took place during FISMA's fall. There were actually multiple instances of this human shield across the country, but the one that I was uh, specifically looking at happened at UCT in, in UCT's more roads must fall context. And um, it was when, um, so basically the previous day, um, the police, and now it's once again, uh, conversation about police as well uh the police were were violent towards protesters um with like firing rubber bullets so there was a, a fear of um a threat of violence and um then they were the protesters were marching to the police station and then um on the actual roads must fall twitter page there was also a call uh, a call for allies basically that said like uh, we need allies um, to help intervene because um, in our society at the moment basically uh, black bodies are under threat of violence mm -hmm. and so what happened was is that the white people present formed a human shield around all the black people so that the police wouldn't uh, or in hope that the police wouldn't uh, use force. Now that is a loaded visual uh, imagery, visual, wow. and um, I need to credit uh, some of the research that has already been done on this topic. And maybe I will sh share some links um, because I'm talking so like <laughs> I cannot re remember all the names now. But people did research where they showed uh, they did, they did an analysis of the Twitter um, like just Twitter campaigns in general during Fees Must Fall, Roads Must Fall time period. And interestingly, not surprisingly though, the, the human shield was the number one trending image on the whole of Twitter during Fees Must Fall and Roads Must Fall. Sure. So that was again saying something and then, and then what they reflect on in their research is how the act was categorized on the one hand as like this beautiful act of allyship where you know white people are coming together and protecting uh the black protesters and it's, it's this example of like rainbow nation south africa and here we are all kumbaya <laughs> type of thing so that was the one narrative stemming from it and that's what people would call like white savior or white heroism where the, the white um we are praising the white people where, and that's that's a part of allies where allyship gets tricky because now the allies are the saviors of the day, whereas the, the other side is to say this is such a problematic intervention, not because maybe because on the 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 fact of the matter is like the the um the black protesters called upon the human shield. It wasn't an initiative by the, the white protesters. So this is a very racialized example that I'm using now, but that was the context. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was to say that this exposes firstly the fact that black bodies are still marked as dangerous or as uh, you know violent in opposition to white bodies that are purely maybe innocent or um, 
And I mean, this is clear in the facts that we know about policing and mm. um, the profiling almost, um, and who's more susceptible in violence. And we see that in the States now as well, and in South Africa. Um, and this also exposes, by the way, just how that, that narrative about police violence and South Africans have been there for a while. And um, even in the Fismos Ford was also a very clear thing. So um, basically just what that was is it was, firstly named as a, as a mode of allyship. So that was why it's interesting for me to engage with it because it's a perceived act of allyship. But then it was this problematic thing of um, maybe questioning why is it that the allyship was praised so much and what does it say about the way in which we can perform if the very gesture of just standing there with your white body can prevent violence um mm -hmm. so that just exposes the pre-existing um systemic and and racial power relationships that that linger so um it's a very complicated case study and there's a lot more to say about it but i i just use it as an example to show how these it's not something that should be dealt with uncritically and it's important for us to reevaluate what those acts mean if you are participating as an ally what did it mean then it's very different in that moment of of protest that's highly charged and literally people are scared lives are in danger and you need to act fast and then when time passes now we have like five years later uh, also a position to reflect on those modes mm -hmm. of acting and what it means today um so yeah uh, yeah so i think another example that it takes a little bit away from um, the, the the directness of the bodies because in that example it's very much the the direct interpretation and impact that a white body in the same space as a black body is read in a different way is is also the first intervention that I did with the staircase that we also spoke about in um, in in the first episode during fees must fall there was a lot of instances of protest and um, art performances uh, protest art essentially on the campus of, of Stellenbosch um, and I I went through a process of asking management for permission to get to I, I told them I got funding and this is a residency and it's an art project and all of that in order to put up the staircase in front of Yane Mare and it was kind of approved and then we were in the process of approval and then literally the day or so the weekend before um, and the Monday was supposed to go up they told me sorry it's cancelled now you don't have approval anymore without giving me a reason and then we decided well now it's really going into protest art because we then just carried the staircase we built the staircase in the art department and carried it the monday um, in an entire group to the monument and there it stood for 90 minutes and then the landscaping department drove up with a bucky and just told me they got a, a call from so-and-so in management they didn't even give me the name i think they i have a recording of it where the woman just said management called her and said that this thing needs to be removed and they loaded it on the bucky and they took it away and nothing happened to me and that is just a very interesting example of how as a white woman it's definitely my privilege that 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 helped me in that sense that i wasn't um, persecuted by the university because other instances of protest and other instances of, of performative process in the terms of performance art um, mm. 
were, were persecuted and people got into trouble and were arrested and nothing happened to me. But also that act of removing something in front of a white sculpture as emphasizing the power balance where the act of the university for taking it away and putting it, um, it wasn't even a hundred meters away in front of the art department and it stood there for six months and they didn't reach out to me or said anything to me. They just released a short statement in the paper that went out to the parents saying that a sculpture was removed this Monday due to fire, fire hazard. And it stood in front of the, the art department for six months before we moved it again. So um, it was clearly not a fire hazard. Exactly. So, so it, that, that actually emphasized the kind of, like you said, implicit power, power dynamics within spaces that are there, that that act of removing made the protection of Yanni Mare even stronger. But also the fact that nothing happened to me as a, as a white person also emphasizes that power balance of how you, like with the human shield example, how when a white body enters that space in terms of policing, it completely changes. Um, and and th that's also where our constant reflective thinking and constant challenging of those spaces needs to come in. Um, because now that I'm aware that my body speaks for myself and that behalf, I can start to use it in, in provocative and daring ways to speak to these power dynamics and structures. Yeah, and I think like, like you said, this was a very rough and unplanned conversation, but these are just reflections on like you are drawing from personal experience and I can also attest to like in the, um, first episode also spoke about it a little bit and those um the ways in which we are protected in certain ways and and yeah that maybe to end off um or you can also add more if there's more to say but it's not it's not there's never going to be a way to be a good ally um in the strict sense of it like there's always and, and i think there is a growing um acknowledgement of there's ways of getting it wrong and there's, but, but that whole thing of the, the wrong and the right, once again, this normative thing of, mm. um, we are not, the, the point of allyship, if you, if you want to call yourself that, or if you are asked to be that, because I think it's more about, it's less about being called an ally versus a call to allyship. So there's a, need, a dire need for, for intervention. And if you um, maybe resonate with that call and therefore by implication are, are considered allies, um, the purpose of it is definitely not, not a, a moral ground of being the best or better ally. The purpose is rather to, to read and redefine uh, or subvert these spaces um, that still show all these injustices like you, like we just say so it's that's why it's relational and it's embodied and it's um it requires a sense of tact and what i like about tactful as a better word or a, a alternative to better or worse allies to have tact is to be in touch so to and to to touch is firstly relational if you think about like the skin and touching and there are better and worse ways of touching or injuring or whatever but it's a process that's constantly shifting like to be tactful is very much to know what's going on in that context and then to to reevaluate and just to decide how you act yes 
No, I agree with you. And I think I just want to end off by opening again um, our engagement platform. So we are on social media because we want people to engage with us and we want you to point out things that we said in this conversation that is maybe a blind spot for us. We want you to tell us that yes this and this or no this and that and 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 really share your thoughts with us so that this conversation can be a continuing conversation it is by no means we kept on speaking about ambiguities and open-endedness and the kind of tactful engagement like you just said it's all things that that is organic and ebb and flow and needs to be continuous and that is our mission is also to engage in this critical sense on a continuous level so that um the conversation doesn't end um so thank you and so much we are not the holders of this conversation. It's a it's no. a broader conversation beyond us that we are just trying to navigate as well. Exactly. So th thank you for listening to our raw airings today. Very informal and a very, I think, also a little bit all over the place as it is such a overwhelming topic, um, but a necessary topic. So thank you for joining us and check out our Instagram and our website for resources. Jana has a lot of resources on this, so we will also compile a little resource list um, of things that you can go check out and read um, related to this conversation we had today. Cool beans. Just a few more things before we sign off. We are so grateful that you listened to the public airing of our thoughts. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do so. Rate and review us if you enjoy our content. This way you help us by making it easier for other listeners to find us. As always, we would love to hear what you think about the concepts, theories, texts and practices discussed in this podcast. So please reach out to us either through Instagram at Eret underscore podcast, through our Eret podcast Facebook page, or via email at eretpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find all these links in the show notes below. If you would like to get a short email from us sharing resources, related content, and any other fun stuff that we don't share in the podcast, please go to our website at nvcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it and subscribe if you are interested in supporting this project you can also do so at nbcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it and remember just like laundry sometimes putting those stuffy ideas out in the air can help freshen them out until next time stay, stay stimulated, stimulated.